When you meet someone for the first time, you're trying to make a good impression. And so you take a little bit more care with the way that you look, but what do you really pay attention to? You pay attention to your words. And so you don't just let yourself say anything that you would if you were with your close friends. Instead, you're careful. You're, you're not trying to manipulate with your words, but you are wise, and you're aware of the impact that they're having because those early words are so important. And when you're just getting to know someone, those, they're listening to those words because they understand those words have a bigger sense of who you are. And so they're listening in order to hear what is it that you value, what's important to you. Where are you going in life? Why do you think what is, that what you're doing is meaningful and important? And those early words make such a big impression, and they carry a lot of weight. I'm not sure if you've heard this expression before. Uh, I came across it last year. You only get one chance to make a first impression. You think about it, and you think, okay, that's kind of a truism, that's kind of trivial. But the longer that you think about it, the more that you realize actually there's something to that. You only get one chance to make a first impression. You only get one chance to create that lens through which other people view you initially. You can maybe try to adjust that afterward, but that initial lens really does have an impact as a, a way of setting expectations for how people will interact with you, whether good or bad. And I kind of felt some of the uh, weight of that this last week. I sent an email out to you, to the church, and I was trying to say, here's how glad Sally and I are to be serving with you, to, to be worshiping with you. And I'm very aware that uh, this is an important letter. And so I, I'm writing this letter, and it's not going well, and it's starting to take forever. And it's, it's clearly not the best thing I've ever written. But it is an important thing that I'm writing. And I want to get the tone right, because we are still in that early introductory phase between us and the larger church. And so I'm concerned for the tone. I don't want it to be too formal, too stiff, but I don't want it to be too informal. It has to give a sense of who I am, but it can't ramble on and on. It can't be weighty and heavy and dense. But if it's fluffy and it says nothing, then, then I'm very aware you're not going to read the next one that I send. And, and I really do want you to read the next one. So I'm working hard on this letter because it's still part of that first impression. I send it past Sally, and she says it's fine. I send it past Luke, he says it's fine. I read it again, I think, no, it's not fine. <laughs> no disrespect intended. But it's not yet saying what I think is important on the front end of our relationship. I spent a couple hours on this little tiny letter. Jesus knew that he was going to make a first impression. And he was silent for about 30 years. You really don't hear very much about him as he's here on this planet. And yet you have that sense that he is thinking very carefully, very intentionally about why he's here and what he's come to do. He's made no public announcement. He's called no one to follow him. He has no gathering. And yet as you catch glimpses, it helps you understand he's thinking about what he's going to do. Early on, he's meeting with the elders in the temple. And his parents go away for the day. They think that he's with someone else in the crowd. And they come back. And, and, and he says, well, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And you get that sense early on. He had this understanding that in order to do what he came to do, he'd have to challenge social conventions, even if that meant doing what his parents didn't understand. Well, there's that wedding at Canaan where you see this glimpse of him almost brooding is the wrong word, but deeply caught up in that moment. His mom comes to him, and, he's, and she says to him, they, they don't have any more wine here. And, and he talks to his mother in a, this very terse comment. He says, woman, why involve me? My hour has not yet come. 
had a sense of timing, a sense of where the mission was and that it wasn't yet time to engage that mission. A little bit later, this was after he introduced himself, he tells you that, that he, what he came to do was so weighty, so important, that it was going to be like driving a sword through the middle of families. It was going to set blood relatives against each other. And he realized, you don't come up with that statement on the spur of the moment. That's something you've had to think about and you've had to have wander around in the back of your mind for quite a t some time. And so Jesus' words and actions reveal this lifetime of planning, this thought, before he said anything about who he was and why he'd come. That means as we look at those very first words that come out of his mouth that are recorded for us, it's going to give us a first impression. And we suspect that he's going to put enough time and enough thought into that to give us a true impression of who he is and what the mission is all about. It's what Luke read earlier for us out of the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you look at that statement, it is just really tightly packed, full of meaning. And yet it is so expansive that it forms the basis for everything else that he did for the next three plus years. He constantly referred to the kingdom of God. He constantly referred to God being on the move, doing something here and now. And he constantly called people to repent and to believe that. It set the trajectory for his own life, but it wasn't just his own life. It set the trajectory for his disciples' lives. He calls them to join him in the kingdom, but then he calls them to join him in the work of the kingdom and to proclaim it outward to others. And here we are several thousand years later, and that announcement still sets his tra the trajectory for his church in general, which means it sets the trajectory for Renewal Mainline in particular. So we want to spend some time studying this kingdom, understanding what is this kingdom all about as it lays out for us what it is that we're doing here. Now, this past spring, you worked through the Sermon on the Mount, and what, that, that's essentially a longer teaching on what life is like inside the kingdom. What does it mean to be a member of the kingdom? How does it affect your thoughts? How does it affect your heart? How does it affect your actions as you live in this larger world? We want to take, for the rest of the summer, a little bit of a step backward and say, what's the bigger picture? What is this kingdom? Why is it important? How do we relate to it? What is it going to call for from us, and where is it taking us? Now, to get us started, we're taking a look at these this pronouncement that Jesus has in Mark chapter 1. And if you were curious and you said, hey, Jesus, could you even say that more tightly? He probably would have picked up the end of verse 14 where, he said, where it talks about how Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of God. If you unpack the gospel, what is it? The time is at hand. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Important for us, then, to understand that the people that Jesus was talking to and the people that Mark was writing to would hear that word gospel in ways that are different from the way that you and I tend to use it. For us, gospel is almost a technical term. It's very much a religious term, and it sort of stands in for the message of salvation. Here's how you are saved. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you receive through faith. That's not what gospel meant in the Roman world of the first century. For them, the word simply meant good news. And when you thought about good news, it was often attached to some kind of political or military endeavor. For instance, you can find a scrap of a calendar back in 9 BC in Asia Minor that has little inscription on it. And the inscription is written about Caesar Augustus. 
Caesar Augustus was born about 40, 50 years before this inscription. And this inscription is a reflection back on when Augustus was born. And it's reflecting on his birthday in particular. It reads, the birthday of Augustus was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, the beginning of the gospel, which has been proclaimed on his account. Very odd for us to hear it that way, but that's the way that people were used to hearing it then. So what is this gospel of Augustus, this good news of Augustus? It's that he established the Pax Romana. About almost 20 years earlier, he had established this way of living in Rome that meant that we no longer have to be at war constantly as an empire, a Pax Romana that extended for 200 years almost. And as other writers would, would talk about, it, it basically was Augustus who ushered in what they thought of as the Golden Age, an age where people became prosperous, where cities bloomed with order, harmony, and good seasons. So the Gospel of Augustus, the good news of Augustus, was that peace and prosperity for the nation was here. Now, if you look in the literature, you can find the word gospel elsewhere. You can find it with military endeavors. You can find it actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when you find it in those places, it's referring to the news that comes from a victorious battle. And so the people that won the war, the, the, the victorious army, would send runners out to carry the gospel out to outlying towns to announce the enemy's defeated, you don't have to be afraid, life can go on. And so gospel had certain connotations in the Greco-Roman world. It meant, for instance, that there was an absence of conflict. We're not having to fight any longer. It meant that there was a corresponding increase in comfort, that the good times are here. And it meant that the lack of conflict, the presence of good times, is immediate. It's happening right in this very moment. And then there was an implied call, an implied expectation that people, upon hearing this, would enjoy it. And they would say, this is a wonderful thing. Peace, harmony, security, the good life is here. Grab your peace, sit back, and enjoy the good life. Jesus' announcement has very different connotations. It comes in a very different setting. We saw in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it comes immediately after John the Baptist was arrested. That sets an ominous tone to the gospel of God. The book of Mark opens by talking about John as the messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the one who would get people's hearts ready to receive the Messiah. So if the Messiah's messenger is arrested, and that's the beginning of the pronouncement of good news, that doesn't bode well for the Messiah. The gospel of God made its public appearance firmly tied to human opposition, to human suffering. And that theme of suffering and opposition will remain tied to God's gospel, the good news, throughout Jesus' entire life. You see that happen very quickly. Jesus goes very early in his ministry to Nazareth. That's the town where he grew up. And Luke tells us in chapter 4 that after listening to him for a little while, people grabbed him and tried to throw him off of a cliff. That was the reception that he had from people who knew him who knew his family, who had firsthand personal experiences of this amazing guy, people who had reasons to like him. You realize that the gospel comes in a context of suffering, in a cloud of suffering. Jesus continued to run into antagonism throughout his entire ministry, never let up. People criticized him. They mocked him, tested him, 
They plotted against him. Ultimately, they arrested him, flogged him, and crucified him. In other words, the gospel of God, the good news of God, does not enter into this world with the same assumptions that the world has when it hears that there's good news out there. Instead, regarding conflict, Jesus knew that proclaiming the gospel meant that he would actually suffer more throughout this life. He would be Isaiah's man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he knew that dealing with conflict was just going to be a normal part of his ministry. He expected really no comfort. Instead, he told people who wanted to follow him that foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And if you want to follow the Son of Man, you can expect the same lack of comfort in your own life. He understood that as bad as things were, they were going to get worse. He knew that the biggest conflict of the universe was still yet in the future and that he would not get to that place. It would not climax until he was on the cross. And far from calling people to enjoy themselves, he called them to join him in suffering. He warned them very explicitly that the servant is not above the master. And if you see people treating the master in suffering kind of ways and persecuting him, you can expect that very same suffering and persecution yourself. If you want to follow this Christ, it'll cost you. And he did not pull any punches. He told people, you have to take up your cross if you want to follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, meaning this is the way it starts. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then his very famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call, at Jesus' call. Bonhoeffer was a man who understood that the announcement of God's gospel was not an announcement that the golden age had arrived, so just sit back and bask in its glow. He knew that God's good news breaks into a world that is at war with everything that God is trying to do. It breaks into a world that is at war with everything that aligns itself with God. That war is real, and it affects his kingdom. It affects everybody who is in his kingdom. You don't become a Christian to have an easy life or an enjoyable life. That's not part of the gospel. You don't become a Christian so that all of your dreams come true. That's not part of the gospel. Rather, you should expect the, expect the presence of suffering and conflict. You should probably expect it to increase. It did in Jesus' life. It does in most lives of those who follow him. Now, some of you should be more than a little sobered at this moment, and some of you are now thinking, okay, um, what is it then that makes this news good? because it doesn't sound very good. Okay, suffering might be a reality of life on this planet, but that's not good, it's bad. It's something I want to have as little to do with as possible. It might be news, but Bill, where's the good here? The good news is that God is on the move. The time is fulfilled. So you have to have the larger context in your mind at all times. We live on a runaway planet that has rebelled against him. 
there are two ways of summing up everything that's important to God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And this world has said, we have better ideas of how to live. We do not think that that is the very best life that we could possibly have. And so the world is in rebellion against God. And God had allowed that rebellion to go largely unchallenged for millennia until Jesus came and said, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled to start bringing that rebellion to an end. The time when God is going to personally step into his world and do something about its rebellion. That's good news because it means that the days of evil are numbered. And it means that the, day, the days for the misery that evil brings are numbered. So you have to remember here, this is not God stepping into a wonderful world, a, a, a utopia, and saying, oh, gee, I'm really sorry, but, but my entrance into the, this world is going to disrupt things and, and it's going to bring suffering. I'm, I'm sorry that it's going to be miserable. Instead, God knows this world is already miserable. There's already misery here. It's not a utopia. And you all know that when you think about it. On a daily basis, nations do what? They manipulate, threaten, and attack each other. They're each trying to get as much as they can regardless of what it costs. They're at war with each other. Sometimes it's overt war. war. Other times it's covert. It, it, it's unseen. But it's still trying to press an advantage by taking something from someone else. Now, why are they at war with each other? Because they are macrocosms. They are collections of how individuals manipulate and threaten and attack each other, trying to get as much as they can without worrying about what it costs. And you know that experience as well. You know what it's like to be faced with agendas all day long that are just trying to use you, trying to get something out of you. Individuals are at war with each other. Why is that? Because we enter into this world at war with God. We enter into this world believing that what we want out of life is better than what God wants out of life. And the result of that difference in desires between our desires and God's desires is that we've created a world that is not a utopia. Instead, we've created a world where injustice is rife, where, where, where there is greed and poverty, racism, war. Those are just everyday occurrences across the globe. And it's into the middle of this broken world that Jesus enters in and says, here's good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. This is coming to an end. God has entered into this runaway world, and he will not leave it until he remakes it until he restores it, until he completely removes everything from it that has an agenda counter to his own. Now, what does that tell you then? That's not just God's actions. Those actions reveal his heart. It tells you something about who God is. It tells you about how much he cares for this world. It tells you how he is not okay to abandon this creation, even though all of us deserve to be abandoned. Instead, God still thinks that this world should be a place that reflects his own glory, a place where every creature on this planet experiences joy and peace and goodness. God is not okay with the way that this world is, and he's not going to stand back and let it be ruined, and so he's active. He's intentional. He has this plan for how things actually can be restored. Not only does he have a plan, he has the will to put that plan into action. Not only does he have the will to put it into action, he has the power to actually make it happen. That's good news. It's good news for the creation in general. It's really good news for you and me. It's good news for humanity in particular. You realize that the alternative could have been true, right? Right? 
God could have said, you know what, humans? You've ruined my world. I'm going to restore my world, but I'm going to get rid of you so that you don't mess it up again. So the kingdom of God is at hand, and you're not welcome. Get out. That could have been our first impression of Christ, and it's not. God doesn't say that. Instead, he issues an invitation. Repent and believe the good news. It's an invitation to join him in what he's doing. It's incredibly gracious. Think about rebellion for a moment. Think about the insanity of what rebellion is, and it will show you a much bigger, more beautiful, special God. What, what, what takes place when you disobey God? You, you have this thought that what I'm about to do is not what is good and right in God's eyes, or, or your conscience bothers you, and, and it says we should really go this way, and for that half-split second, you say, mm, nah, I'm going to go ahead and do this. What's taking place there? God is not simply the one who gave you life. God is the one who sustains your life. You can't even have ugly, evil, God-hating thoughts without his assistance. Because what's taking place in that moment is he's keeping your heart beating so there's blood pumping through your brain so as the neurons are sitting there trying to figure out how to be in utter rebellion against him. And how does God respond? You want to live your life your own way at his expense, and instead of squashing you, he breaks into your world and tells you, repent. Turn from that. Stop going that way. Come to me. Let's start again. What is that? That's good news. That's the gospel of God. Now let's take a few moments and talk here about the kingdom of God, about what the kingdom is and what it isn't. Because I think words like kingdom can move us to have the wrong idea. We tend, kingdoms do what? They, they tend to make us think geographical, geographically. So here, here's a certain amount of territory. It has borders, and those borders butt up against a different kind of territory. You can't think like that. That's not what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to God's reign and his rule over all things. Think about it this way. It's God's kingship and how God chooses to exercise his kingship. And you can't think here too small. It's not that God decides to be king over his people. It's God exercising his kingship over his people, but also over all the nations, and ultimately over all of the world. Now, in God's wisdom, he has allowed evil to have a time of, being, of, of basically ruling on this planet unchecked. But now God is challenging that rule by bringing his kingdom, by bringing his kingship, his lordship. And in some very significant way, Jesus is announcing that there's a new reality to life on this planet. Something has broken in from outside. And now that that is here, because it is God and it is because he's bringing his rule to this world, it's not going away. It will stay here. Another aspect of this kingdom that, that would be helpful for us is to recognize that there are multiple dimensions to it. Sometimes, like in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the passage we read, Jesus says that it is at hand, it's near. And, and you get the sense that it's, it's like just outside of arm's reach, it's almost around the corner. It's not quite fully here, but, but it's really close. It's at hand, it's near. Other times, however, Jesus will give you the sense that it's not just near, actually it's here. You think about when he's arguing with the Pharisees and they're trying to figure out whose power is it that you're using to cast out demons? And Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 28, 
if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it's not just near, it's here. It's right here, it's right now, in this moment. And yet there are those other times where he'll talk about the kingdom of God as though it were yet future. He talks about the wedding feast that we'll have in the kingdom of heaven and how people will come from the east and the west to gather to be with the patriarchs and to, to eat together. And you get the sense that's not near, it's not here, it's yet future. In other words, the kingdom of God is taking back this planet, but it's doing so in stages. Sometimes it's really close at hand. Other times it's right here. Other times it's yet in the future. And Jesus is announcing that God has started his advance, but that advance is not fully complete yet. It's really here. It's not as fully here as it will be one day, which means that you and I then are the people that live in the in-between time. We're the people who live between the times when the kingdom is first announced and when it's consummated. And that's why we still experience suffering. Even though the kingdom has broken into this world, the forces of evil continue to oppose the kingdom of God. And so you cannot allow yourself to think during the week that you get this opportunity to live happily ever after. Happily ever after is coming. But that's still the future. You cannot settle down and say, I, it's because I'm following Christ, I can now settle in and, and I can create a wonderful utopia in my family or in my career, or I can enjoy everything right here, right now. Right here, right now, there's what? There's war. There's war between the invading kingdom of God and the entrenched kingdom of darkness. It's a war over which values are going to hold sway. Which values, the values of the kingdom of God or the values of the kingdom of darkness, which ones of those are going to be more prominent? Which ideas, which thoughts are going to guide which actions here on this earth? That war takes place, as we said, on that macro level across every continent and in every nation, but it's also taking place a lot closer to home. It's taking place in your neighborhood. It's taking place in your family. And the reason it takes place in your family is because there's that war for each one of our hearts. That call for where is your loyalty really going to be? It's a war for your allegiance. It's a war where you can't be neutral. You can't live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of darkness and say, it's okay, I can bridge these two and I, and I can do that really well and I can appropriate values from each of them and mix them together in my world. Because in order to obey the dictates of one kingdom, you have to disobey the other. And that's why Jesus' call is so strong. It's, it's very stark. He announces the kingdom, and then he says, there is an appropriate response to my announcement, and that is repent. That's it. Repent and believe the good news. Hear this. That is not a good suggestion. That is not a polite request. Jesus is not coming trying to sell something to people. He's not saying, look, I have all these things that I can offer you and your life will be really wonderful. Would you like to invite me into your heart? That's not what this is. This is a command. The Lord of the universe, the king, has come to reassert his kingship over this planet. It's, he, he's incredibly gracious to include you. 
It's right to talk about it as an invitation, but we need to be honest this morning. It's an invitation without a choice. He doesn't say there's multiple options here. Which one would you like pick? He insists that you join him. He says, in light of the fact that I'm bringing my kingdom, you can repent. You can lay down your opposition to me and to what I'm doing. There's no negotiating. You can repent and you can believe. You can agree with me that my way is best. And when you do that, I will gladly welcome you into my kingdom. If you won't, that means that you're going to still be outside of my kingdom. In other words, he tells you that you have to quit defining what it means to have a good life on your own. You have to adopt his understanding of what a good life is. I think it's important at this moment that we realize he's not just talking to the down and outers. He's not just talking to the dropouts of society. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Israelite nation. He's talking, he's not talking to one of the Gentile nations. He's talking to the people of God, to people who had the word of God, who studied the word of God, who read the word of God, who passed it down to their kids. He's talking to people who are very religious. They, they were a nation that was full of synagogues, full of priests. They had national religious holidays. And it's to them that Jesus says, repent. Jesus believes that religious people need to repent. You think, okay, uh, repent of what? Repent of your complacency that thinks you don't really need the kingdom of God. Repent of, your, repent of your contentedness so that the kingdom of God just doesn't float through your mind during the rest of the day as you are not here in church. Repent of that sense that, that you don't really need God to break into your world to make it better because you're already doing pretty well without him. Or repent of your religiosity. Repent of your confidence that what you do in your relationship with God is far more important than what God does in your relationship with, him, with himself. Repent of your short-sightedness that believes there are things in creation that you just have to have because you are absolutely convinced they are far more satisfying than a relationship with this king ever could be. Or maybe repent of your fatalism that says, I haven't seen God break into my world, and therefore I don't believe that he's ever going to bring the kingdom. Repent of your longing for a different kind of kingdom, one that you personally would find a little more comfortable one that would allow you to go to work and not to have that tension and that, that feeling of awkwardness with people or that allow you to connect more easily with your neighbors, one that was more in line with what you want the kingdom to be. You know, the, the list could go on, obviously. The result is the same. To each and every one of those, Jesus says the same thing. Repent. Repent. Turn from those. Believe that even though the news of the kingdom might be different from what you expected, Maybe it's different from what you hoped. Believe the good news. Believe that it is good news. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> Especially when the message of the kingdom is different than you thought it would be or different from what you wanted it to be. Those are the times where you have to remind yourself that Jesus only says that because he has good purposes for you, because he doesn't want to see you hurt. And because of that, he's willing to step into your world and allow you to be uncomfortable. And he's willing to call you out and say, there's a better world for you. Please come into my kingdom. Repent and believe. Let's think about it this way. For those of you who have little children, you'll get this illustration. For those of you who don't, you'll still, I think, get this illustration. When your little child wants to run into the street, 
it's because they don't really understand the world, right? They don't know what cars are. They don't know how dangerous that is. And so when that takes place, you don't say to them, honey, there are a couple of really good options here. You can keep doing what you want to do, or you can listen to me. I happen to think one of those choices is better than the other, but I respect that there might be a difference of opinion here. I respect fully that you are an autonomous individual and that you can craft and create the world the way that you'd like it to be. So go ahead and choose which one do you want, either what you want in life or what I want. Okay, nobody who's a good, past, a good parent says that. Nobody who's a good pastor says that. What do you say instead? You gently proclaim to your child, and I mean gently, you gently proclaim to your child, the kingdom of father is here. <laughs> the kingdom of mother is here. Repent of your false ideas of how to go about living your life, because those ideas are only going to hurt you. And now believe the good news that I have a better pathway for you. You cannot be heavy-handed, you may not be belligerent, you may not be mean when you say that. But you have to be clear. Why? Because it's best for them. Because it is good news, and it is not good news objectively, it's good news subjectively, it's good news for them personally. They have to respond to the good news. Why? The alternative to the good news is so bad, it literally could kill them. And that's when you realize they cannot maintain a foot in both worlds. They can only act according to the values and the ideas of one realm or the other, but not both at the same time. They will either respect what you have said or they will believe what they already think. But what has to happen is they must repent. Even if they think their idea is better, they still have to repent. They have to figuratively cross over from the realm controlled by their desires into the realm controlled by yours. And to do that, they have to place their confidence in you. They have to believe that you have their best interests at heart and that you're trustworthy. And to help them do that, you issue a very clear call, repent and believe. That's what Jesus is doing. He's calling the nation of Israel. He's calling his people, to leave the thoughts, the values, and the actions of any king that opposes, kingdom that opposes him, and he's calling them to join him in his, to be loyal to him, to adopt his thoughts, his values, and his actions, to leave all those other kingdoms back and to become citizens of his, even though that means that they're going to have to suffer all kinds of things when they do that. How do you get your heart to move in that direction if it isn't already? You think here about who Jesus has already proven himself to be. You remind yourself, he already has my best interests at heart. You remember that proclamation of the gospel. He didn't come and, and wipe all of us out. Instead, he proclaimed the gospel and he called us to join him. That already says something about his heart. You remind yourself that he voluntarily entered into that suffering. And what did he get out of that? He didn't need that. What did he get out of that? He only got us out of that. He entered into that suffering on his own for our sake. And regardless of how great your suffering on this earth is or will be, it never will compare with what Jesus went through on your behalf. He faced the white-hot wrath of God that you deserved on your behalf to rescue you. That's the kind of king that he is. So when he calls you to change your thoughts and, and, and the things that you're doing, you remember his actions because they tell you what his heart is like. And you think to yourself, 
This is a great king. Who would want to live in any other kind of kingdom? Want to be a citizen of his kingdom. Now, when you are a citizen of his kingdom, that means that your fundamental identity changes so that you are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's the way that you start to think of yourself. It's an identity that is more ultimate, more defining than any other identity that you could have. And so when you enter into the kingdom of God, you are no longer, first and foremost, a Democrat or a Republican. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're no longer, first and foremost, urban or suburban. You are, first and foremost, a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're no longer, first and foremost, professional or tradesman, white-collar worker or blue, college-educated or not. You are, first and foremost, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let me get really personal. You're no longer male or female, black, Korean, or Asian, or Caucasian, upper, middle, or low income. You're first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, all those other dimensions that I just listed, those all matter. Okay, They don't get erased. They don't get flattened by coming into the kingdom. But they are secondary dimensions to who you are. First and foremost, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. First and foremost, you are who you are. You are in relationship to the king. And that's the key then for us coming together as members of his family. That's the source of our unity inside of God's kingdom. It's gonna ha it has to be the source of our unity here at Renewal Mainline. See, if your primary love and loyalty are to the king and my primary love and loyalty are to the king, it doesn't matter how far apart we are when we start. It doesn't matter how different we are when we start. We are moving toward each other as we're moving toward him. That's the source of genuine, authentic Christian love for each other. And it's that love among us that then speaks volumes to the larger world. Because they start to go, wait a minute, there, there's something real here. Something that's not just religion. This good news is not just words, it actually changes people. They actually have genuine, authentic care and concern for each other <laughs> when on the surface, there's nothing that, that would draw them together. The flip side of that is also true, however. When you see fractures and divisions in the church, either church in large or church more particularly, it's because something of secondary issue has become more important than our love and loyalty to the king, than our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And that secondary thing has replaced the primary thing, and it starts to be the way that we view each other, and it's the way that we split off from each other. It's a favorite strategy of the evil one. It's one that's very easy to fall into. And it happens because we don't actively make ourselves think, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's your first and foremost primary identity. Instead of thinking that way, we fall into the tribalism that's sweeping through our country right now. And we start to let ourselves think primarily in those other terms. We think of each other primarily in political terms or primarily in racial terms or primarily in gender or socioeconomic terms. And when you do that, you will fracture the church. You can't help it. What do you do when that starts to happen? Jesus already told us, you repent and believe. You repent of thinking that anything is more fundamental to a person than their connection or their non-connection with the king. And you believe that that is 
the source of your identity, it's the source of every other person's identity that you rub shoulders with today. In other words, repent and believe is something that you do throughout your entire life as a citizen of God's kingdom. It's the way that you enter into the kingdom. It's the way you continue to live in the kingdom. That's why Jesus invites not just people one time, but this repentance and belief is, is an ongoing activity. It's an ongoing process. Recently heard somebody talk about repentance in a way that I thought was beautiful. Her church was going to have a service uh, where they were focusing on repentance. And she said, oh, I can't wait. And she wasn't being sarcastic. She said, I can't wait. I love repenting. You get to be so clean afterward. That's the right attitude. That's why Jesus invites us to repent. He knows that we drift, that we drift away from his kingdom, that we start to add other values, that the world influences us and affects us, and we adopt those other thoughts and those other beliefs. And so our life together is a lifelong practice of repenting with confidence because Jesus is the one who's invited us. So in Jesus' name this morning, let me invite you to repent and believe. Let's have a time of prayer. Let me invite you just to spend a few moments on your own praying.